Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks, a podcast. We're here today to discuss a really great topic and one that I think um, deserves some explanation and probably will lead into a series of episodes, and that is the continuity of services and how we can provide adjustments and supports for students of all ages, of all ability levels, of all interests in our classrooms and in our schools. And so I have some of our district experts here today to weigh in on this topic and to share their expertise with you so that we can help clarify misconceptions, misunderstandings, and maybe fill some of the information void that is out there so that um, parents, students, family members can really appreciate and understand uh, what a school is capable of doing to support students and how we can really work together as partners to ensure that students are afforded everything they need to have the opportunity to meet with success. So before we get into it, let's uh, I'd ask everyone to go around the table and introduce themselves and tell our audience what you do in our school district. Hi, everyone. My name is Joel DeBarros. I'm the Assistant Director of Special Services here in the district. Hi, I'm Amy Gallagher. I am the Director of Special Services for the district. Hi, I am Michelle Dressel, and I am an LDTC at the high school. My name is Katherine Mosier, and I'm a learning consultant at Franklin Elementary School and the other elementary schools as well. I get to go everywhere. It's wonderful. All right, great. Thank you all for joining me today. So our topic today is going to be how what is the continuum of services and how do we address the needs of students uh, of, of, of all different types. And so before we go too far, I just kind of set the stage. We're, you're going to hear words like INRS, which stands for Intervention and Referral Services. You're going to hear about 504s. IEPs and special services. Uh, and you're also going to hear some words that we just really wanted to find before we get going. And uh, two of those words are accommodations and modifications. So let's define those before we get going so that we can use them correctly um, moving beyond this discussion because they are too often treated as synonyms and they are not. Uh, accommodations are the ways that a teacher or a school can adjust the methodology, the way things are taught, how in, how uh, learning experiences are delivered. So those are commonly things like preferential seating, uh, extra time, small groups, things like that. And modifications are adjustments to what is being taught, curricular changes, meaning the content of the class itself, the core standards that are addressed are different than the typical class. Uh, additionally, it is important at this point to note that one of the fun things about accommodations, although many times they are dictated and documented through plans like INRS 504 and IEP plans, uh, accommodations, any reasonable accommodation can be provided by any teacher to any student at any time. So as I say that, that's a lot to soak in. And what that really means, I'll give you an example, is perhaps a youngster isn't performing to the level they typically do, or something happened, um, they had some uh, event at home or in their personal life, something happened, um, they just didn't get a good night's sleep. And they say to the teacher, like, hey, would you mind if I came back? I didn't finish. Can I have a couple extra minutes? The teacher can say, sure, no problem. And oftentimes there's a hurdle there because then the response is like, well, how could I do that for every kid? And the short answer is, why not? Right? Uh, I would hope we would respond to any student who needs support in the best way possible. So hopefully those two kind of things set the stage for our conversation here. Um, because oftentimes there is a perception um, of information supports being withheld unnecessarily. And so that's one of the things we're going to really talk about is how those decisions are made. Okay, so on having had just kind of set the stage with accommodations and modifications, I'm going to invite people to jump in. Tell me your thoughts on that statement that any reasonable accommodation can be made for any student at any time by any teacher. I know I changed the order there, but uh, tell us what you think about that. 
So I think that that's a really important distinction to make because, you know, you look over the past three years of education and our, you know, our experiences, what the academic experience looks like for kids has changed so dramatically. So the need to be able to accommodate um, students at a variety of levels within the same classroom setting is is absolutely paramount to good teaching. Um, you know, what we would expect students to have achieved by the end of a certain grade level, that has shifted what those expectations are. And, you know, the needs are a lot more varied in our classrooms. So we expect students to be at different levels. So accommodating students is an expectation in every single classroom throughout the district. Yeah, I think I think it helps to also like level the playing field for for students not just if you have a specific document or um, you're, you have an INRS plan or if you have an IEP, it helps level the playing field for students across the board on any given topic. You know, for instance, you're on a unit that you're struggling with and you might be in an honors level class, but you know, you're having a difficult time with that. And an accommodation can certainly help you better understand that content, better understand your your meaning behind this this information that you're gathering. And and I think that goes across from any level, any setting. You could be in a kindergarten classroom and struggling with one specific topic. It doesn't mean you're going to fail that topic. You shouldn't fail that topic because it's difficult. What can I do to help you understand this topic? And that's where an accommodation could come into place, whether you have you know, some type of documentation or legal document stating that like it's, it certainly helps students across any level, any student in a school setting that is sitting in a classroom that that should be eligible for that accommodation should have that opportunity to find that success with that topic as well. All right. So the first step of that, so if a student requires some sort of a, an accommodation or adjustment support, and perhaps it's on an ongoing basis. It's regular. It's not a one-time thing, right? The example I gave about a little extra time here or there, no big deal. The kid that happens, and I was one of them, happens to be fidgety this particular day or overly chatty with a friend or a neighbor, asking them to sit somewhere else. Totally reasonable accommodations in that particular moment, and we move on the next day, and we're back to, to the typical routine. When we see a pattern develop where a youngster is struggling, whether it be socially, emotionally, behaviorally, some combination of those things academically, right? These things do have an interplay between each other and so often impact one another. So what's the first step? Oftentimes, it's INRS. So let's talk about what that means first. So INRS stands for Intervention and Referral Service. It is outlined in New, New Jersey Administrative Code, uh, which is a set of laws that govern uh, the operations of schools. And what it does require is it requires in all school environments, right? So K through 12, this is not an elementary thing. It's not a, it's, this isn't every, every kid thing. Uh, schools are required to have a team of professionals, and that's multifaceted. It's administration, it's counselors, it's teachers, it's oftentimes child study team members. It's uh, anyone who can have input on, on how to best support students to design a plan based on data collection, based on observable issues, items, problems, whatever's going on, concerns. How do we document those things, and how do we design a plan to support the student in having the opportunity to meet with success? So teachers can refer a child through INRS, a parent could refer a child through INRS, and oftentimes what INRS does is it will strategize about how impactful is whatever the concern is, and then how do we address that? And they have resources, one of them is the PRIM manual, that's the pre-intervention manual, and that has is full of ideas about ways to support students, but oftentimes it's professionals like us sitting around a table, not necessarily talking about a student, Chuck Sype. 
It's a, here's what we see today. Because for a student to be referred to INRS, either the parent, the, the administration, teacher referred the child, because theoretically, the teacher has tried everything they possibly can to support the student, and they're really out of ideas. They need additional assistance. And so the, the strategy of that group is to really brainstorm strategies. What's that mean? You're going to have three outcomes, and let's talk about those. Those strategies work. Those strategies take a little bit of time to work, or they don't work. So go ahead, Amy, jump in there. Yeah, one of the things that I want to bring up with regards to INRS is a misconception as to how long a student can have an INRS plan. And oftentimes, when you know a student is receiving accommodations uh, within an INRS plan, whether they're in a basic skills class or you know what they're re- they're needing to receive let's say, copies of class notes for a prolonged period of times, oftentimes people think, you know what, that's indicative that they need a different type of plan. And that's simply not true. What we are looking for is that a student is meeting with progress. (laughs) If a student is progressing, then we're happy with that. We don't need to move to a different plan. We don't need to document it in any different type of way. If it's working, then we can keep with that with it, which means that there's kids that can have INRS plans for quite a long period of time, as long as they need it, without needing to then refer them to a more intensive type of plan. It's a great point to make. And you just said before, and I'm going to use your words, we're happy with it. And the reason we're happy is because the student is meeting with success, right? Mm-hmm. The student, the only reason you would consider a different plan or a change of the plan if the student is not meeting with success. Go ahead, Michelle, jump in. I just wanted to add that I had had a few students who'd gone through the INRS process in the past. I was a language arts teacher. And um, so what we had done, it was I was language arts and math at the time, ICS. And so what we had done was we had the meeting, discussed the first round of options. So the first tier is always usually in the classroom. So in, so we met the, other, uh, the co-teacher and I, and we went through with the parents and the team what we thought that they should, would, would really help, help them really understand the content that they were missing. So then uh, what we did was we came up with a plan. We did keep data. So weekly we checked in to see how they were doing, if they were progressing at all. Um, and so the first tier, they... So the first tier, they were not. So then what it ended up being was that we ended up pulling them. So the plan became that we ended up pulling them during free time. So the, the student was fine with it, and so were the parents. So we ended up pulling them at that time and going through additional work. And at that point, the student was doing better. Um, but And so like one thing that I wanted to say about the process is that I had heard this actually from someone else who um, I had gone through a conference with, and she had said that it's kind of like a cake, like a layered cake. So you don't take away the support. So you'll offer one type of intervention. And if that doesn't work, you still stick with it, but then you just add on another intervention. So, and then again, you get all the way to the third tier. And then if at that point, it's still, you're finding after months that it's still not working, then at that point you can, you know, reach out and see if they need basic skills or see what else they might need in addition. And I just want to clarify, you use the word tier. So just so everyone who's listening, uh, the reference to tiers is really tier one, tier two, tier three, which is academic language. It's connected to multi-tiered systems of support, which the New Jersey Department of Education has some really great information on their website about. Roxbury School District does follow an MTSS model. 
And so tier one would be kind of generalized. It's what everybody gets that the state of New Jersey has defined that as high quality learning environments, evidence-based curricular instructional practices on a continuum of supports and interventions. It's what everybody sees. Uh, it's the flexibility that occurs in any classroom. Tier two is kind of what Michelle got into there, which is uh, some supplemental supports and instruction that are really more specific to a smaller group of students. Uh, before you get to tier three, which is kind of how you close your commentary, which is a much a more intense support and intervention for really individualized students where there's adaptations of other supports and interventions because maybe a plan isn't working or maybe a youngster requires some more specific um, intervention and support. And so, Kate, you're a part of that process at some of the elementary schools. So would you mind just kind of sharing about your kind of dual role? So you're on the child state team also, yeah. but as a CST member, you also support uh, intervention referral service. And I set you up that way because I want everyone to understand that we're all working together on this, right? This continuum of services is something that we are all working on. This is not like a relay race uh, where you would see the baton pass from one party to the next. Uh, it's more like um, a conga line where everyone is connected working together. Yes. And we just want, we're just looking for that success for the student. Um, and on INRS, we, we do get to meet with the, uh, the teachers, and we have at the elementary level, we have the In Support of Learning, which is super helpful, and we get some really good data there. And, um, you know, we're trying to be very responsive to the teachers and to the student and respond to whatever the needs are. And sometimes we do have to think creatively and um, outside of the box. And, you know, you had said before, you know, if you have a fidgety kiddo, sometimes that means that they go and schedule, you know, sensory breaks or they need a little heavy work in between classes, things like that. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. We have a lot of... I think if, I, if I could just chime in, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And two things came to mind as you're saying that, you know, for me, like when we talk about INRS and we talk about that process, you know, and there's the different tiers as well. Like one thing to keep in mind too is that there's two key words that come come to mind with INRS. It's frequency and duration as well. It's not like we're just doing these interventions for, oh, hey, I tried it two times and it didn't work. Like, no, 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 we have to, it's gotta be strategic. And we're saying, we're gonna do this for every math class, you know, for the next 12 weeks or eight weeks, gather data, collect that data, re reassess and, and see if this intervention is actually working. So those two terms are are very important um, when we talk about INRS. You know, it's not just like a one off or, yeah, well, I, I did this last Tuesday and it didn't work. So it's a, we're going to we're going to cancel that. Um, but but another thing that came to mind, too, is, you know, as, as Dr. Seip was sharing and, and Michelle was sharing earlier, it is really a a collaborative team approach when you're talking about the process. You have multidisciplinary people as a part of the team because they all bring different perspectives. And I think that, you know, if someone's coming with that that math background or working in a small group and I have someone with, you know, a special ed background that can really talk about some some outside the box thinking. And you have these different disciplines and professionals in there that really paint the picture for this kid on how to help support this student that is struggling. And I think that's one of the things that people might not know about is that it's not just the principal and, you know, a teacher. It's it's a group of professionals kind of gathering really to discuss how to help support this student. Well, and we also have to remember that it's not like a one shot deal. Sometimes we try something for a couple of weeks and it doesn't work, but that doesn't mean you just jump to the next thing. You like rethink and you go back to the drawing board and what else could we do? And will this be effective? Because maybe we tried a visual strategy first and that wasn't. Now we should go to, you know, something more multisensory for the student and try that for a couple of weeks. You know, it's, you know, they're kids. It's, they're not cookie cutter. You know, we have to be very, you know, specific to each of them. 
So kind of piggybacking off of what Kate was just saying, um, the multi-sensory approach, that's great with group work and centers. So I, I have always thought that was essential in any classroom on any grade level, age level, um, because you can reach all types of learners that way. And it's just a better way to ensure that you're covering all your bases and you know that they're learning to all the different learning styles. And that is a huge curricular push, particularly at our elementary middle level, is that um, that centers-based instruction, you know, primarily at the elementary level, in particular in, in math and language arts, to ensure that teachers have the opportunities to meet with and support students on their individualized needs, as Mr. Barros just said, based on data. We're collecting data, whether it's anecdotal data, it's um, empirical evidence, which is, you know, kind of numbers based on how students are performing on benchmark criteria. So it's all of that stuff painting a whole picture. Okay, so so that's kind of the first introductory to documenting a support plan, which is INRS. The next, which isn't really next like a sequence, but it's oftentimes the next in that continuum of service, which would be a 504. So uh, the big difference between an INRS plan and a 504 plan um, besides the the beginning, which is that Section 504 is not really an educational law. That is a federal law. It's uh, it's a part of the Federal Rehabilitation Act of 1973. It's an amendment to it. Uh, and what it really does is it requires any federally funded agencies, public schools are federally funded, uh, what, regardless of how much federal funding, uh, we'd always, everyone would always like a little bit more, but, um, you know, any federally funded agency is required to support uh, individuals who have uh, a disability, so a disabling condition. And so what makes a youngster eligible for a 504 is that they have a diagnosed physical or mental impairment or the perception of one that is substantially impacting one or more major life functions. Of course, learning is a major life function, but so are things like walking, sitting, talking, playing, right? So pretty much anything that you could say, this is a critical part of my life, those are major life functions. So those are the big things that make a youngster eligible. Is this impairment having a substantial impact on one or more major life functions as it pertains to their schooling? If the answer to that question is yes, then the youngster is eligible. Uh, the reason I make that distinction is oftentimes doctors, um, you know, kind of are a part of that process from a personal standpoint, but just because a doctor says they think a student is eligible doesn't mean they are. Just because a youngster has um, a disabling condition or impairment, if it is not having a substantial impact on one or more major life functions, while the school can accommodate and support the student, maybe through an INRS plan or something more regular, doesn't necessarily mean that they're eligible for a 504. So if they are, then the school prepares a 504 plan, which is a legal document, um, and the parents are a part of contributing to that process of memorializing how a youngster will be supported with, as the law says, reasonable accommodations. So, And those reasonable accommodations are connected to that disabling condition or impairment. So I'll give you a quick example. If I broke my arm and I can't write, I'm technically eligible for a 504, at least for the duration of the time I'm in a cast. But that may not allow me to have, a, I'll make a silly example, a special seat at the lunch table, right? Because it's not connected to the broken arm. Um, now, if there was some other condition that was also concurrent with the broken arm that would require me to have that special seat in the lunchroom, that's a different story. But so just because a youngster is eligible, the, the plan is really provided surrounding that, um, that disabling condition or impairment. So in the example of the broken arm, but I needed some sort of a special seat in the lunchroom because of a different issue. Perhaps I could have an INRS plan that dictates the, the accommodated lunch seat, but also a 504 plan that is possibility a possibility based on the youngster's needs. And one of the things I wanted to discuss with 504 specifically is the mental health um, struggles that we are seeing 
really spike at this point in time. And at each of our district schools, we have counselors available for all students. So when you are looking at what is available for our students and what needs to be part of a specialized plan, students have the ability to receive counseling at all of our district schools. So when students are struggling mentally with whatever issues that may be, and it is affecting them in school, the first step that we do is we uh, we introduce counseling into their plan, whether it's through INRS, and know that that can also be documented through a 504 plan. So if there are diagnoses like anxiety, depression, anything like that, that's typically where we go. A lot of times people think that you need a much more intensive plan because you have that diagnosis, when in reality, when something is provided to all students, that 504, the INRS plans really are the best places to look for that type of support. And sometimes I've worked with counselors who will see gen ed students just because the parent has reached out and shared that there is a concern and that as long as they sign the slip, that you know, the permission slip or whatever, um, they'll do check-ins and whatnot. You don't actually even need like those fancy plans to get that support. And so one of the points that I think is important to make, and it does sadden me to say this, but I think it is a reality, is in the event a parent has the perception or has a friend or a neighbor or a family member or a doctor who tells them like, well, the, the, the child is clearly eligible for a an IEP or a 504, and we haven't gotten IEPs yet. Um, and then the the data, as Mr. DeBarros um, discussed, doesn't suggest that that's a necessity. Too often it is seen as a consolation prize or that I didn't get this thing I needed, you know, um, whatever that, this idea of this thing that I needed. The, the real question that I think needs to be asked is, is the school working to support the needs of the child? Is the school using that multi-tiered systems of support approach to really provide accommodations that are appropriate that provide the student, I've said this a couple of times now, and I feel like I keep slowing down because it really is important, the potential, the opportunity to meet with success, right? Because what the whole strategy as we kind of segue into special services and IEP development is that the, the, the rationale behind these plans is to provide a scaffold, a support system to support the student so that as they age up through our schools and into young adult life, they have not only A, learned how to help themselves, but B, are capable of doing so because as students age out through the schools, the life beyond the school walls, notice I was careful there not to say the real world because second grade is the real world for a second grader, uh, the life beyond schools and after schools may not have the same structures and support. So part of our our um, job, our, our task as a school is to support <laughs> students in not only understanding how to help themselves, but being empowered to do so. Someone even mentioned self-advocacy before. So um, so I think that is an important distinction. That that's It's not a consolation prize. If the school is doing everything they can to work with you and support the child, then it's really what is needed uh, in that instance. Yeah, what, one of the key things that, you know, going back to what we've, we've certainly mentioned thus far is like you you can get supports without having any of these services, like without having these these documents or this diagnosis or, you know, there's a lot that the school has in place already. Like, so I, I know sometimes people, like you talk about the consolation prize, like you don't win if you, if you get an IEP, like you're, it's not a win. It's like, for me, like helping students like we we get into this profession because we love kids we love helping them out we love helping them to to progressively you know show that progress in what they do and it's a challenge and that puzzle sometimes is what 
what we, we, we kind of bring to the table and we're like, yes, like we have to all work together to really help these students out, whether they have an IEP or whether they have a 504 or a part of the IRS process, that, that doesn't make a difference. You know, we're, we're still here to help students across the board, all the students, you know, all the students that are in our schools. Go ahead, Michelle, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I was going to say this is more usually typically talked about with special ed, but I just wanted to add because it makes me think of this um, least restrictive environment. And so even with the 504, it makes me think of it because you want the kids to get just the support they need, not all of this additional all of these additional modifications or accommodations, because as you said, eventually they're going to need to be on their own one day. Mm -hmm. So you want to start moving away as they get older. So especially on the high school level, that's always the goal to, you know, you provide them with what they need to be successful and, and, you know, to reach their fullest potential, of course, but you have to keep in mind that they will be exiting the high school at some point, and the overall goal is for them to be as independent as possible. And I think that really goes to, um, you know, seeing students productively struggle through things. And I, I know as an adult, especially as a parent, it really is hard to see your child struggle through things. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, we hear that parents, uh, um, are frustrated with the amount of struggle that we're allowing the students to experience. And that struggle is so, so, so important. We talk about things like perseverance and resiliency and being able to face that adversity is really, really important for our students, especially knowing that within a school system, there's a soft spot for these students to land, right? There's a there's a net that's going to catch them. It is better for students to struggle through the process while they still have this net than to be cushioned all the way through and then they hit, you know, post-secondary life and there is that struggle. So when it comes to these plans, yeah, we're dealing with students that are struggling and we're trying to see how are they reacting to this struggle? How are they reacting to each of these things? So as we kind of start to to what Michelle said, you know, really look at what do they need? Sometimes that means they are going to struggle a little bit and that's that's okay. There is learning in that struggle. Well, and there's no uh, one step in these processes that is going to make any struggle just disappear. Struggle is part of life and we just have to figure out how to cope with that and deal and like help them through that journey because that's that's how we grow as just human beings, right? Like I can't go, oh, well, you have an IEP now. No, nothing will be hard. That's not how life works. You know, it so, well, I, you, as we segue now, you know, kind of into the, the ongoing process here. So it's a good time to kind of move into what is that IEP process and uh, what supports can special services provide? I'll say this one last thing before we kind of leave the world of 504, introduction to 504, which is um, based on the language and what can be included in a 504, what makes a youngster eligible, it is important to note that there are a lot of students that oftentimes uh, find themselves as classified and receiving uh, an IEP. But in reality, according to how the law reads, both um, for um, Chapter 14, which is the, the section of New Jersey Administrative Code that really outlines special services, as well as Section 504, um, a youngster who is not receiving a modified curriculum, and I kind of mentioned what that means before, but I'll say it again, that's an alteration to what we are learning, the standards that are the focus of the class. Uh, and they're really just receiving accommodations, or perhaps they're even receiving some additional assistance in the classroom. Those students really can be serviced by a 504. There, there isn't really that need for an IEP to be a part of how we document that student's, um, that student's support system. 
um, because both of those are legal documents. Both of those are redirected, reevaluated, and reestablished based on the collection of data. They are both a collaborative process that often includes um, various stakeholders from inside the school district, but also uh, the parents and the students. So there is a lot of similarity there, but I think that there is a perception, not just here in our community, but pretty much everywhere I've ever been in my educational journey, that um, one provides greater allowances than the other. And that really isn't an accurate depiction unless there's a real need for a modified program or some other limitation is substantially, substantially, substantial impairment that's so severe that perhaps a 504 can't support the student. So uh, let's transition to what what does that process look like? Perhaps I'm a parent and I don't believe that the school is servicing my child appropriately or that the appropriate level of support is being given. What's that process look like? How do I engage in that conversation? So if you're a parent and you have concerns, you can write a letter to special services ex expressing those concerns. And what that gets you is a, a meeting with the staff on the child study team, including the teacher, uh, learning consultant, social workers, school psychologist. If there's any, you know, the guidance counselor is uh, involved um, and that gets you a meeting to review all of the data and the information that has been done um, to support the student and Really, as the child study team, we're looking to protect our kiddos and keep them in the in the classroom with their peers as much as possible. So, if there are other um, other supports that we can provide, that's that's what we want to do to help them be successful. And at that meeting, we decide if there's enough information or if there isn't enough information, and whether or not evaluations will be warranted because there is enough information, and what those evaluations will look like. Or if they're not warranted at the time, then uh, what else could we do? Because it's really trying to brainstorm, you know, many, many hands lighten the load um, to see, you know, what's best for the kiddo. Yep. So then within, so then uh, this child study team would discuss and let the parent um, know within 15 days if we are going to be doing evaluations, what evaluations are warranted. Um, and then it would be if the parents do consent to them, so if they do consent to whatever evaluations are warranted that the child study team feels are warranted, then it's a 90-day process from there. And so at that point, um, we would be doing an educational, um, usually an educational and a psychological and a social assessment so that would go over, you know, how they're doing academically, um, where their ability is for the psychological and then the social, just social history in general to see kind of what has happened and, you know, what has led them to this point in the past. If the parents want to add any additional information at that point, that's their time to speak with someone. Um, and then you would meet again to review the to review the results and go over th everything with the parent. And then at that point, if the parent is in agreement. you know, if they if we do find them eligible and the parent is in agreement, then they have to sign off on it, and then they would officially have their IEP. Just going to back up a little, little bit because I think the biggest piece is, and it's it's um, different in every district um, that I've been in. They handle it a little bit differently. At that planning meeting, as you're going through the information. Um, the child study team members are really trying to think about um, all of the disabling conditions that are offered by our state and government, and there are 13 different categories, and you have to suspect that that student would qualify under said um, classification, and then you would decide those evaluations based on whatever suspected disabling condition that you thought that they had. 
Um, and that, that's really critical as well, right? That you have to suspect that, that that's the issue. So, Amy, I know you want to jump in. I just want to provide one piece of clarity as Michelle is kind of describing those timelines as you move into this process. There are very specifically legally driven timelines. But the piece I just want to add is if the youngster was being supported with some other plan upon prior to being referred, INRS plan, 504 plan, that remains in effect. It's not as though well, you move kind of like from one category to the next. These pieces of support are all interconnected. So, um, you know, I don't want anyone to misunderstand that, you know, if, if you pursue additional supports for a child, that doesn't mean other things go away. Um, it, those things persist until either they're replaced, supported, adjusted, or adapted. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I just wanted to mention as part of that, that initial meeting with the child study team um, is we do talk about what interventions have been tried before. And if interventions haven't been tried, if we are, if we agree that there is struggle, but the student hasn't gone through the INRS process, or we don't have documented interventions to see how a student responds to those, oftentimes that is where you know, we, we try to start instead of jumping right to the evaluations. We really want to make sure that there are, that we have tried everything before we've gotten to that process. And it's really important for parents to know that that is not anyone saying we don't want to help this child or that it's a denial that a child is struggling. That is not the case whatsoever. It's just there, there are other avenues by which we can try to support the student before getting to this process. Because honestly, once we get to this process, it can often take, you know, at minimum 90 days um, to, to be able to determine if a student is eligible and then what they might be eligible for. And then it takes time for us to be working through things when oftentimes we already know where the child is struggling. We've already identified what that area is. We don't need to go through this entire process just to get the student the supports that they need. We can do that at what would deem like a lower level of support like an INRS plan. And I just I just wanted to add something as well because a lot, um, we've had parents come in the past and say that their child is greatly struggling and reporting that at home they're having a tough time, say, with writing or something like that. But then when you look at their scores, they have 90s across the board. So that's where it becomes tricky because they do they are not being you know, at, at that point, it's not significantly affecting their, their grades. It's not sig significantly affecting them academically. So they're compensating in, in one way or another with the skills that they do have. So a lot of times it's just the parents, I think, hearing their children at home saying, I'm struggling or I'm frustrated, but they are still doing a great job in school. I, yeah, that's a really great point. And I just kind of wrote down the note to emphasize there that there is you know, there are, I've had in my own experience where there's been concerns from parents, well, they report what they're seeing at home, and it isn't the same as what we're seeing in school. And the school is still invested in trying to help support that, but there is the reality that the purpose of some of these plans um, in almost their entirety is how do we support the youngster with receiving their education? Um, and so that definitely becomes tricky sometimes when the parent is experiencing something. That's, that's a real experience uh, at home. But when it doesn't um, coexist with what's happening at school, that, that becomes a little bit more of a challenging conversation. And the reality is oftentimes youngsters who struggle really work hard all day to keep it together, all right, to do their very best in school. And they are able to meet with that success. And then when the school day is over, there's this like, 
uh, this like relief moment. Like I can, like I can relax a little bit. And sometimes that it, it does, the youngster does present differently at home than they do in the school. And that makes it very hard to compare data sometimes. Because home is their soft place. Yeah. That's where they can land. They, they feel safe there. They can, mm. you know. Yep. Yeah. So once we find a student um, that we do, they, they do warrant evaluations as uh, Kate and, and Michelle talked about is that there has, they have to fit the criteria of a specific eligibility category. And so you look at something like uh, a specific learning disability, right? And we often think that, oh, a specific learning disability means that there is struggle. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, all students are going to have strengths and weaknesses. All people have strengths and weaknesses. It's just the level of the discrepancy within those strengths and weaknesses that we're looking at. So again, this isn't a consolation prize. You aren't winning or losing if you're found eligible. It's just a way for us to determine where best we want to put your support or the support for the student, which plan might fit the best. Um, so there, there really is no one process that is, it's not like one is better than the other, more supportive than the other. It's just what type fits the best with the needs that the student is presenting with. And I, I think that's probably a good place for us to bring this episode to a conclusion. And perhaps we do a follow-up to really talk about deeply what that process looks like. Michelle mentioned least restrictive environment. New Jersey Administrative Code requires a thorough and efficient education for every child. So how do those things come together? I think perhaps that's in the next episode in a seri this series. I do think it's important before we end, though, to talk about, like, we mentioned for a while at the beginning that we have these universal structures, that tier one support that's for everybody. So what is the district doing to support that? The great news is we have some prior podcast episodes that we're partnering with. A, 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 reg, a local expert, not local, but you know, United States expert, um, world known about um, universal design for learning. Her name is Leanne Young. She's been working with administration and will expand her influence uh, with teachers next year about uh, how do we prepare learning experiences that are accessible for all students in a variety of ways. How do we give them um, multiple means to engage with content and learning experiences? How do we provide them multiple means to present what they've learned and uh, and and express what they what they understand and what they don't understand. So um, we will continue to develop that partnership, and I think she's going to be a real critical piece of how we deliver that tier one instruction as we continue to establish the universal design for learning mentality. And one of the things I know that she has worked already in conversations with teachers, particularly at the middle school, with is understanding that difference between equality and equity. And there's this real famous picture of youngsters standing on boxes behind a fence to see a ball game, but there's a new iteration of that where the fence itself is a chain link fence um, as opposed to the wooden fence requiring the boxes. And if you're unfamiliar, if you Google that, the picture will come up very quickly. And that, that real philosophy behind the evolution of that picture is how can schools work to remove systemic barriers to, so that the need for accommodation doesn't exist. And I think that goes very back, you know, not intentionally, not intentionally circling back to one of the first things I said, which is at any time, any teacher can provide any student any reasonable accommodation. And I think that, you know, how do you change that wooden fence to a chain link fence so the boxes aren't needed? And I think though, please do know if you're listening and you live in Roxbury, these are things, conversations we are having at all levels to ensure that students can access their education uh, independently on demand and with confidence. So um, I appreciate you listening. Any last thoughts? I like how you wrapped it up. <laughs> All right. So uh, look, keep your uh, keep your eyes and ears out for a future episode that gets a little bit deeper into that IEP process as a follow up to this episode. And thanks for listening. <laughs>